Ascension Day was last Thursday, the day in the Christian year when the church has traditionally remembered the ascension of the resurrected Jesus into heaven to be with his, with his Abba, our Creator God. Some churches may have observed this feast day, but many churches tend to overlook the entire event. It's easy to understand why. The intensity of Lent was released in the exuberance of Easter with triumphant music and alleluias, powerful preaching, lilies, packed pews, and Easter egg hunts all over the place. Now, Pentecost is just 10 days away with calls to worship in different languages and red velvet cake and sparkling red punch receptions to celebrate the birthday of the church and perhaps some baptisms and confirmations. Who can muster much energy for Ascension Day? Yet, the ascension of Jesus made it into both the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creeds, along with other confessions of the faith, suggesting that in Christ's ascension there is something central to our faith that needs to be acknowledged and expressed. It is an awkward event for many of us, difficult to understand and explain. For one thing, we are not accustomed to seeing or even imagining bodies being lifted up into the clouds. Throughout the centuries, artists have painted this ascension story in an almost comical manner with only Jesus' feet sticking out from a cloud. In addition to this, the image of 11 men standing together, staring up into the sky as they say farewell again to their beloved friend and teacher can be unsettling in the midst of Easter joy with Pentecost on the horizon. Imagine that you are one of those first disciples the past few weeks have been an emotional roller coaster for you, with your hopes and dreams dashed by the cruel execution of your leader, with all of the fear and despair that come with being on the run and in danger of losing your own life. Then the stunning realization that God has overcome death that Jesus is somehow alive and powerfully present with you, teaching and encouraging, preparing you for the arrival on earth of the reign of God. Now, just as a new and hopeful equilibrium has been established, Jesus is suddenly disappearing, lifted up into a cloud that will hide him from your sight leaving you alone again, but with one big difference. You and your companions are now charged with the same work that was once your teachers, to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to those who are oppressed 
Work that you well know can be risky, dangerous, and even cost you your life. Knowing all this, what are you feeling as you watch him disappear from your sight? It is not difficult to imagine the disciples' feelings after all this. After all they had been through, Jesus is now gone. They are left wondering and waiting, trusting that the Spirit will come as Jesus has promised, but not certain when. God will act in God's own time, not theirs. As God still acts in God's own time, not ours, and when the disciples ask, Jesus, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus simply replies, I'm not going to answer that. And besides, you don't need to know the answer. Go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for God to act. The ascension cannot be overlooked. It is the story about Jesus' physical departure necessary so that the Holy Spirit can be bestowed upon the church. It is the story about Jesus taking his place at the right hand of God, where he remains and prays for us constantly. But for Jesus' followers, then and now, the ascension is also a story about waiting about being in the in-between times, about life during times of uncertainty, and how we are to wait during those times. Waiting can be exciting, and waiting can be challenging. This past Sunday, on Mother's Day, I found myself remembering my own three pregnancies as I waited expectantly and not always patiently for nine whole months times three, 27 months in total. That amounts to two years and three months of waiting for new human beings to arrive on this planet. These months of waiting were not passive, but active times of waiting filled with visits to doctors and midwives, shopping for baby clothes and equipment, decorating the nursery, enjoying baby showers, trying to keep in shape by exercising and eating healthfully while eating for two, and reading books about childbearing. While much of this was enjoyable, some of it was downright uncomfortable and even painful. The first exhilarating butterfly movements of life eventually turned into violent sleep-disrupting kicks. My center of balance became so uncentered that Humpty Dumpty seemed more graceful than I was. <laughs> also, it became quite clear to me near the end of each term that I had no control over the timing of this. Each birth would happen in the Creator's own good time, not mine. And I had it easy. 
There are go those who go through pregnancies alone, knowing that when their child is born, they will be raising this baby alone. There are those who wait, knowing that due, their, due to their incapacity to support a child, they will be handing their baby over to others for adoption. Others go through difficult pregnancies that require them to remain bedridden or in the hospital or both for months on end. Others, after months of expectation, face the devastation of a miscarriage or bear children who are stillborn with joy turning to grief. And there are children who will be unwanted, uncared for, and children who will be raised in poverty or neglect. It strikes me that pregnancy is a metaphor for waiting that can expand outward to many other experiences of being in the midst of uncertainty or expectation. While we crave resolution and desperately want answers, we find ourselves having to wait, not only while waiting for a baby to be born, but after the loss of a loved one, or facing unemployment, a broken relationship, the summer before college, itching for a cast to be removed, awaiting the results of a biopsy, watching as a parent slips away to Alzheimer's. I had the opportunity to watch a documentary recently on the plight of a Syrian refugee family as they faced the total destruction and loss of their home and homeland. Forced to flee everything familiar to them, they spent two years in a refugee camp in Jordan before finally coming to the United States. The husband spoke poignantly with tears in his eyes about how hard it was to wait, not having the dignity of a job, not knowing what the future held for him and his family, not knowing how they would be received in their new home, not knowing much at all about the language and culture of the United States. They did not choose to leave their homeland. They were forced out by their own countrymen, forced to leave or die. When it came time for them to leave Jordan for the United States, this man had to leave his parents as well, since they would not be allowed to immigrate with them to the US. He left his father and mother behind, knowing that he might never get to see them again and that his parents might not be able to ever see their grandchildren again. The waiting and the uncertainty were so hard for all of them. Fortunately, we in the contemporary church have been given clear instructions as to how we are to conduct ourselves in interim times when we are waiting upon God to act. First, we are to wait trustingly for God's saving action. Before Jesus leaves his disciples, 
He promises them that they will receive the powerful gift of the Holy Spirit to enable them to witness to the coming of God's reign. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In Acts 1, two men in white robes, who biblical tradition indicates may have been Moses and Elijah, questioned the disciples about their vain seeking after their Lord in the clouds, then seek to reassure them with a promise. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These are the same two men in white who, in Luke's account of the resurrection, question and then reassure the women at the tomb. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He has risen. This Jesus will come again. These are the same promises we cling to today as we wait for God's new creation to be born. We wait trustingly for God to act. These same hopes and promises are those that we speak to one another as we wait together in community. The early church teaches us that we are not to wait alone, but together. In the account of Jesus' ascension found at the end of Luke, we read that the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God. In the Acts account, after Jesus' ascension, the disciples returned to Jerusalem to the upper room where they had been staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All of these were constructed were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. I can imagine the disciples praying together, sharing meals, singing together, encouraging one another, and reminding one another of the presence of the risen Christ, the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of their Lord's coming again. If this all sounds familiar to you, it's because we're doing the same thing right now. As we worship, encourage one another with God's word and promises, share in the Lord's Supper, and then in a common meal in the refectory, we wait together in community. We wait in a state of preparation and readiness this is not passive waiting, but active waiting. When the right time comes, when God chooses to act, we need to be ready. 
because witnessing to the arrival of God's reign by working and speaking for that reign can be hard, risky, and dangerous. As the first disciples discovered, working for Jesus can even get you killed. Even if we are not called upon to give up our life, responding to God's call will require us to be at our best, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. So we spend time with the spiritual practices that strengthen us and raise our awareness of God's presence, worship, prayer, reading of scripture and other spiritual books. We educate ourselves and others about the pressing social justice issues of the day so that we can better speak out and advocate for change when we are called upon to do so, when we are called to witness before kings and emperors, to speak truth to power. We practice self-care so that when God calls us to act, we can respond out of a full well, not a depleted, drained one. And finally, we wait expectantly, with ears and eyes open, and all of our senses on the alert for God's call to action. The church talks a lot about this during Advent when we are admonished to keep awake on that first Sunday of the season. And we hear a lot about readiness and preparation during Lent as well when we are often renew our commitment to spiritual practices that will help us to be ready to respond to God's call. The truth of the matter is, though, that we are to stay awake, be ready, and expect God's call to action at all times, during all seasons, each and every day. And here's the thing. If we do stay awake, if we practice waiting expectantly on high alert, I dare say our whole view of the world around us may begin to change. In the midst of the suspense of waiting, the uncertainty, the mystery, the apparent lack of change, we may begin to see that God is present and about to move. The air itself around us may begin to shimmer with possibility. Mixed in with the heaviness of waiting, an electric current may cause our senses to tingle. Something is about to happen. All it will take is one small nudge of God's finger, one small spark from God's match to set in motion a change that we didn't see coming. We wait expectantly on high alert for God to act faithfully and powerfully. Some may say that standing around looking up into the clouds is a waste of time. Get your head out of the clouds and get to work, they may say. There are people to feed, injustices to correct, systems to change, evil to fight. God helps those who help themselves. And to some extent, they're right. 
But I also think that some expectant cloud gazing is a good thing. I fear we can get so busy, so caught up in our own agendas, including the good works we do in the name of Christ, that we may miss the clarion call of God when it comes. I wonder what would happen if, for one day, for one hour, or even for one minute, every single human being on earth, or better yet, every single living creature on earth, stopped what he, she, or it was doing and came to a complete halt, all of us, at the same time, looking up to heaven expectantly. Can you imagine it? Do you think if we all got quiet and waited expectantly, all at the same time, a universal Sabbath, if you will, of one minute or two, or even a little bit more, that the reign of God might finally come in its fullness? I know that Jesus said it is not for us to know these things, but it is an intriguing thought. And this idea has occurred to others as well. I'd like to close with a meditation by the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. And while I lead you through this meditation, I invite you to close your eyes as we imagine and enter into his vision of what this might be like. And now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 12. For once, on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush without engines, we would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars Wars with gas, wars with fire, 
victory with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now, I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. One, two, three, four, Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve.